Good morning. My name is Kristen Johnson and I'm the Shepherd of Communication here. And if you are new today, we are so grateful that you're here um, on behalf of all of us. We hope that you feel welcome. And we know this can be a little awkward, but right now our greeters, our ushers are gonna come down the aisles. And if this is your first time here, you don't have to do anything embarrassing like stand up or even raise your hand. But if you could just make eye contact with them, maybe give them a little subtle wave, very low key. They have a small gift for you that we would love for you to receive from us. It's a copy of uh, the Mark Journal, so you can follow along today. It's a little info about us and a way to get coffee on us. And if that's not comfortable, or if this is not your first time, maybe you've been here for years, but you are still struggling to connect, we would love to talk with you out at the connect wall after the service. We want this to feel like home. Um, yeah, this is, this is a place that is safe to process. And so we are going to dive in today to the words of Jesus. And Mark chapter four is packed with Jesus' words. That feels great and a little baffling. Um, his words are simple but they're also complex. As I've been reading this chapter over and over for weeks, I felt the gamut of emotions. I felt confusion and gratitude, hope and sadness and excitement. As I prayed through all of that, I kept finding myself asking, God, what do we do with this? And then it clicked that maybe that's the point. What do we do with what God gives us? This chapter is all about Jesus repeating in his own way, here I am. Right? I am giving you words about me, about the kingdom. The words are amazing, but you, original audience, and you, people of Fullerton Free, what are you doing with them? What are we doing with what Jesus gives us? Remember in Mark, we've talked about needing to pay attention to how people respond to Jesus. In this chapter, we will see people who do not understand what Jesus gives them. His words are confusing, and they lean in, and ask questions. And we can infer that there are other people in this chapter who do not understand what Jesus gives them, his words are confusing, and they lean out. As we move through this chapter, which posture is yours? Which posture do you want to be yours? We get to choose if we lean in or lean out. What are we doing with what Jesus gives us? We're going to go through our text from beginning to end and then backtrack a bit. And we're doing the whole chapter, not just what we read. So beginning in verse one of Mark four. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice the audience. Jesus is teaching a lot of people in parables. Parables in our English usage are stories that have a secondary meaning. Biblically, parables can be more nuanced than that. They 
They can be a riddle, a proverb, a comparison, a contrast, or an allegory. Our first parable here is allegorical. It's a story with an additional layer of meaning. The elements of it all represent something else. And it's important for us to hold on to the idea that Jesus is intentionally using a story to tell people about different outcomes or responses to the very same seed. The seed is not changing. A key for us as we look at this whole chapter is in verse nine. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearing comes up 13 times in this chapter. Hearing is very important. You might wanna mark it in your journal as we come across it. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful." But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Notice our setting now. Jesus is alone with the 12 and others, not this introvert's definition of alone. Okay? He is no longer addressing the whole crowd. He's talking to a more intimate group, maybe just those in the boats with him, not those on the shore. And presumably, these are the ones who genuinely want to hear him. In Mark, we keep seeing that Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, but it is not matching up with people's expectations. The people were anticipating an earthly kingdom, and Jesus is talking about something much more expansive than a Jewish nation. It's part of the secret Mark references. And it's easy for us to look at Jesus' words about parables here and think that he's saying that he is intentionally trying to obscure meaning from people. But as we work our way through this chapter, we are going to continue to see his desire for people to hear, to understand, and to act. It's important to note that in the Bible, hearing and understanding is never simply about head knowledge. As this parable shows, hearing the word and accepting it means bearing fruit. Hearing and understanding requires obedient action on the hearer's part. We demonstrate our understanding of what we've heard by obeying. As a teenager, if I heard my mom tell me to set the table for dinner and I comprehended the words, I knew what set the table meant and I knew when dinner was, when dinner came, if the table was not set, my actions demonstrated that I did not obey. I did not hear in the biblical sense. To complete the act of hearing, I needed to do the thing. I needed to demonstrate my comprehension of the words by setting the table. And when Jesus says in verse nine, for those with ears to hear, to actually hear, 
It means act on their comprehension of his words, not be able to repeat them or even explain them. Live them out. When he quotes from Isaiah in verse 12, those who see without perceiving and hear without understanding are those who technically have sight and hearing, but they do not act on what they see and hear. They fail to complete the process of seeing and hearing by doing. As Jesus explains this first parable, he says people will hear the word. They will hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but they will not all receive it the same way. Some will never really get it at all. Some will show initial response to it, but it will not last because there's no root. There's no connection to the source. They are not abiding with Jesus. And some will show growth, but not fruit because other things crowd the gospel out of their life. But those who truly hear and obey will grow and bear fruit. Verse 21 And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the heart of our text today. In contrast to what Jesus seemed to say earlier about parables obscuring things for those outside, here Jesus says in verse 22, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Some people interpret the lamp in verse 21 to be Jesus himself, and some interpret it to be the kingdom of God. Either way, Jesus is saying that he is not proclaiming a secret kingdom meant to be kept from people. He is here to reveal, to proclaim, to throw open the doors to all who will hear and believe and act obediently. Anyone who will follow Jesus is welcome. Remember our question, what are we doing with what God gives us? Verses 24 and 25 are helpful here. We have to do something with what we're given. We'll come back to that. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In contrast to our opening parable in this chapter, which stressed that the soil or the person receiving the word of God was responsible for the result of what happens, here Jesus is giving us a different image. He is showing us that while the soil does matter, God is sovereign and he already knows what the seed will produce. There is mystery to the process of the seed growing and producing, but God is fully aware even when we are not. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the only parable in Mark where it says the kingdom is like something else. Other gospels use that a lot. This is the only time Mark records it. And perhaps many of us have heard the parable of the mustard seed enough that we miss the twist in this parable. Mustard seeds, uh, they're tiny. They are not literally the smallest seed on earth. That is the black orchid, but that does not grow natively in the land of Israel, and I don't think anyone sows them. Uh, But the mustard seed, it is teeny tiny. It's the smallest seed Jesus' audience would have been familiar with. And the size uh, of the plant does grow very large given the size of the seed, but they typically grow into medium-sized bushes, not the largest plants in the garden. So Jesus' original audience would have been surprised at the size of the plant Jesus describes here. And that's the point. The kingdom of God will also have a surprising size and result considering the tiny start with Jesus and his hodgepodge group of misfit disciples. The kingdom will not look like the kingdom the people are expecting. And remember the prevalence of hearing in our text today. Notice that Jesus is sensitive to that in verse 33. He is fully aware of what they can hear, which means both understand and obey. Our final section today begins in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Notice the setting is presumably back with the original crowd from the beginning of the chapter. It's unclear if Jesus has ever left the boat in this chapter or if if he's been in the boat all along, sometimes addressing the crowd on the shore and sometimes more privately speaking to the 12 and the others with him in the boats. Maybe they've drifted from shore a bit. But here we see that the day is wrapping up and Jesus is ready to go. Some commentators see that kind of funny phrase, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, to mean that Jesus did not go back to shore before they set off for the other side. So multiple boats head across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus, who is worn out from the day, promptly goes to sleep. A storm rises up, and Jesus is sleeping through it. Notice it is a great storm, so this is significant, they're probably not overreacting, but Jesus' boatmates begin to panic. And they wake him up and their question feels so real to me. Do you not care that we are perishing? How often have I said to God, do you not care that this is happening right now? When God seems silent or I do not understand what's going on, I'm feeling panicky. How quickly do I assume a lack of interest or compassion from God? And Jesus gets up, he verbally rebukes the storm and a great calm replaces the great storm. And he asks them about their fear and their faith. Think about that, their fear and their faith. I've been convicted by that this week. 
How often do I need Jesus to ask me, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? After all I've seen God do in my own life, after the incredible ways he has demonstrated his love and care for me, how often am I still afraid? And when I'm afraid, what is the state of my faith? In our teaching team, Darren asked why we don't look for Jesus first and then do what he's doing. Why didn't anybody try to share his cushion? Why don't we? We have no lack of storms in our life. If you're at all like me, you have an abundance of moments when you feel fear surging through you and you are sure Jesus is sleeping on the job. But instead of asking him to share his cushion with you, you ask him why he does not care about you. Yet unlike the disciples, we know the fullness of who Jesus is. We know if we are followers of Jesus, we are secure. There are scary and unsettling circumstances in life. But what are we really afraid of? Where is our faith? Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why are we so afraid? Have we still no faith. Remember, hearing in our text also means understanding and then living out of that understanding. Hearing and faith go hand in hand. If I have heard and believed, if I have faith, then I will act. My actions show what or whom my faith is in. Next week, we'll go more into faith, but right now, let's go backward through our text quickly. My question at the beginning remains, what are we doing with what God has given us? The parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 through 34 is talking about the kingdom of God, which appeared and started so small, but will grow, is continuing to grow now in our own lifetimes into a surprising size. In Matthew 17, Jesus tells a different parable and also uses a mustard seed, but in that one, it's to demonstrate our faith. Even a tiny bit of faith can lead to big results. Am I putting that faith into practice in and for God's kingdom? Are you? God will produce the results. We saw that in the parable of the seed growing in Mark 4, 26 to 29. And then getting back to verses 21 through 24, Jesus came to place that lamp out in the open to give light. He did not come to obscure truth. 
Jesus came to reveal truth, but not everyone will see or hear it. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Parables, which is primarily what our chapter consists of today, can be revelatory for those who get them, but frustrating for those who do not. For people looking for and listening for God, for truth, he is inviting them into the kingdom and revealing ever more to them. But for those not truly looking and listening, those who may comprehend the literal words, but miss the point and not act on them, or those just looking for a show, they are perhaps even becoming hardened and less able to understand. As I was thinking about the parables and the way they're usually very simple words, but not everyone understands them, I thought of a probably poor analogy A couple summers ago, my whole family, we were up at Hume Lake, and all 11 of us were staying in one cabin, and there was a bookshelf full of games, and my nephew pulled off Catchphrase, and that's a game from the, it was the original, from the mid-90s, and my nieces and nephew were 6 to 12 years old at the time, and I love Catchphrase, but I was a little apprehensive that they would be able to play it. The point of the game is you get your team to guess this word or phrase by saying words or phrase, phrases that aren't in what you're trying to get them to guess. But it was from the 90s. They were very not born then. And so we started playing, and I was a little, you know, whatever, but they, they were really good at breaking down phrases into their component words, even if they didn't know what the phrase meant. So my niece, who was six, got the phrase six feet under. She didn't know what that meant, but she knew six feet and under. So she got us to guess it. Um, so I realized, you know, there's... There's some things going on here, but then I realized I also had to know who was on my team in order to give my clues. So if I got Saturday Night Live, which was one of the clues, and my brothers were on my team, I could say Hans and Franz, and they would immediately say, pump you up or Saturday Night Live, because we are of an era, we grew up together, we have shared history and knowledge, We were the target audience of the game in the 90s, right? So I could give them a clue that they would get immediately, but if I said Hans or Franz to my nieces and nephew, they would look at me and maybe know that those were people's names and it would mean nothing to them, right? They would understand the words, but they would not get my meaning. For them to guess Saturday Night Live, I would need to say things like weekend, not the day we go to church, opposite of opposite of day, they would get there eventually, but it would take more words. My brothers in that analogy would be the insiders who would get and respond to the very same words that would frustrate my nieces and nephew. My brothers as insiders would get more understanding out of the same words. My nieces and nephew as outsiders would understand less, not more. And that fits with what Jesus goes on to say in verses 24 to 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is not a heartless or unfair saying. Remember, hearing involves not only comprehending, but acting on what you hear. I started piano lessons in fourth grade. To play the piano, you learn to read the bass clef and treble clef and use both hands to play them at the same time. In seventh grade, I started to play the flute. The flute only plays notes on the treble clef. I I played both through junior high, and then when I got to high school marching band, I dropped the piano lessons. 
And guess what happened as I kept playing the flute, but not the piano? Over time, I lost the ability to read and play the bass clef. I was not regularly using that skill, so it atrophied. Sure, I still technically knew the, the notes on the bass clef, but if I sat down at the piano today, I could not play the treble and bass parts at the same time. In fact, I couldn't even play the whole treble part because a flute plays one note at a time, unlike a piano. So even in reading the treble part, my ability to read multiple notes at a time is now virtually non-existent. Why? Because when I started reading a solo note at a time, the ability to simultaneously read multiple notes, let alone on multiple clefs, it slipped away. Do you see the connection? My musical ability decreased from my lack of practice. So I lost the very little that I had to begin with. Had I leaned in instead of leaned out, it would have turned out differently. To the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Hearing, even intellectually knowing truth, is not enough. Knowing the notes of the bass clef doesn't mean I can play them. We have to put it into practice. We have to use it. We have to exercise and use our faith. Or what we have atrophies. It becomes less. But if we use it, our capacity increases. What are we doing with what God gives us? If I rest on my knowledge of God from seminary or Sunday school when I was a kid and do nothing else with it, it will atrophy and slip away. I do not want to be the soil that receives the seed and the seed begins growing, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choke out that growth because I am not continuing to actively hear truth and live it out. And sometimes people use these particular parables in this chapter to paint a scary picture of either a mean God trying to hide himself or of people losing their salvation. That is not our God. Jesus is not a lamp under a basket. God is not hiding or asleep. But the word of God attracts those who are pursuing him in faith. And the word of God repels those who either do not want to hear and act on it, or who want to hear and have it affirm their preconceived ideas. We do not need to be afraid, even when we do not have all the answers, even when the world is stormy, and the world is stormy. God has given us his word. He has given us himself. What are we doing with Jesus? Are we leaning in by faith? Are we putting into practice what he has explicitly asked of us? Are we confessing our sins? Are we turning to him? Loving God, loving people, generously giving of our resources, bringing our fears and questions to Jesus, caring for the outsiders, speaking truth in love, using our gifts for the glory of God and the good of others abiding with Jesus? Are we living out our faith? If we are, he will be faithful to continue growing our faith, growing our practice of our faith. We will see the slow growing fruit of the spirit being produced in our lives because we are remaining in Jesus. 
And if we stop practicing our faith, if we stop engaging with the word and living it out, we will atrophy. What are we doing with what God has given us? When, like the disciples, we do not fully understand what God is giving us or even who he is, are we asking in honesty, who then is this? And leaning in to discover more of Jesus? That's my prayer for us. God, give us the faith to keep leaning in, to keep asking honest questions, asking them about you and asking them of you. Help us to be a community, a family of hearers, people who, people who listen to you, believe you, and obey you. Grow our roots deep into good soil. Teach us to abide, to remain with you, and to allow you to produce the fruit of your spirit within us individually and collectively. Add more to us, please. We long for more of you, Jesus. Amen.